156th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 49 years to the day since Sir Gary Sober's only one-day international. He made a six-ball duck. Welcome to the podcast that has scored as many ODI runs as perhaps the greatest all-rounder in the game's history. And that's where we are on Reverse Threat Radio, trawling the history of the game to find ways in which we have somehow um, can compare ourselves to the, to the to the to the greatest in the games in the game's history. I remember once listening to a TMS um, conversation between Jeffrey Boycott and I think Phil Tufnell, where they tried to persuade Jeffrey Boycott that in theory someone in one day cricket with a higher strike rate than someone else would be the better batsman because Phil Tufnell actually had a higher strike rate than Jeffrey um, Boycott <laughs> when it came to one day cricket and I think you've just tried to pull off a similar hoax there um, the lies damn lies and statistics isn't it exactly in the rest of the uh, podcast we're going to be um, hearing about when the president went to the cricket back in 1959 um, and we're going to be reviewing Freddie Flintoff's field of dreams a feel-good uh, BBC documentary um, Andy, what's been um, what's caught your attention in the world of cricket over since since we last podcasted? It's been a few weeks. So um, I'm a sudden softy, despite my dad's uh, Carlisle roots, and I've never experienced the legendary Yorkshire Lancashire leagues. Um, but I got a little taste of this the other day. Um, I was umpiring, which I often enjoy. You know, if you've you've already had your uh, innings and you're you're sort of out there casually enjoying being in the middle without you can any screw up pressure. someone else's innings when exactly. you've done, <laughs> when you've done exactly. the same thing yourself. Mess, having messed up your own, you can mess up someone else's. Um, but I found myself with, with quite a with quite a handful. I had um, a gentleman from Yorkshire I knew he was from Yorkshire because his teammates referred to him unceasingly as Yorkie who was bowling Yorkie. Um, and he gave a sensational constant running commentary and this commentary was unrelentingly grumpy so his big concern initially was the new law that stops you spitting on the ball so when he would get hit for four he would tell me at length that this was because he hadn't been able he to spit on, the, on ball the ball and couldn't grip it is this a COVID I, rule? I didn't know that this was a new... So, it's a very interesting one, actually. Yeah, think? brief detour. They introduced this for COVID, and then post, uh, as much as we are post the pandemic, they've kept the rule, because apparently research showed that it didn't seem to make much difference to swing. So, they're now saying, well, actually, let's just not spit on the ball. Um, anyway, my um, my dear uh, Yorkshire um, colleague was, was very un- unhappy about this. Um, his new tack then became, he was very upset that one of our players was on track to make 100. And I'm not sure what he seemed to think this guy should do. He seemed to think that he should sort of, that the gentlemanly thing to do would be to retire and to not walk make off 100, without yes. his 100. Um, you know, the sort of rules we play on a Sunday is that you make 100 and you retire straight away, yeah. as, my, um, as my teammate did. And when he did, uh, Yorkie was pretty he used some language admittedly to me rather than to the batsman which i don't think i can repeat uh for our family friendly rating so it how was did you little... respond to this as as as, as well... the umpire because you kind of want to be matey and you but but also you don't necessarily want to be um 
complicit in such uh, such northern grumpiness. So I attempted matiness, and when he got hit for one of his first boundaries through square leg, I did say to him, I said, look, it's a very difficult to end to bowl at as a spinner. You know, there's the short boundary on the leg side. He was a spinner, and, and he was complaining that he, then he yeah. was saying that spitting on the ball was going to make a difference. He's very unhappy about it. And <laughs> when well, I, so my... Did he give any logic to this? Oh, anyway, sorry, it's just probably no, going well, too far down the, down the rabbit hole. I was didn't... imagining he was a swing bowler, and hence not being able to spit on the ball was you know making we, a difference because he couldn't swing it but anyway. I, I think to be honest he would have found something to um yeah. to, to yeah. cause him yeah. to cause yeah. him unhappiness but my my attempt at matiness trying to bond with him over the the fact that he had been given a rough end to bowl from was greeted with a sort of very gruff you know do what my captain tells me etc etc so I, I sort of gave up after that um, one thing I would say to him is despite his relentless and unceasing grumpiness, um, he did call me sir, which felt very strange because A, uh, while it might perhaps be convention, it's not something you generally get when you're umpiring a village cricket game on a Sunday. And secondly, it felt very odd given that I reckon there was so, sort of, um, what, maybe a 30-year age gap uh, in, in sort of his direction. But, um, I, but I quite I, enjoyed being Was it sir. sometimes a, a, a sir that was kind of delivered with <laughs> absolute... As in, with all due respect, which, which <laughs> at, at, at times can obviously mean with absolutely you, no respect what You whatsoever. mean, was it... Was it a surly sir? Um, it, it, um, it, it, it seemed it, it seemed it seemed quite polite. I was mostly glad that I didn't have to deal with any sort of tricky LBW appeals. I did get one incredibly optimistic and very loud run out appeal, which was clearly not run out that he was unhappy about. But um, yes, I fear if it had been um, if if there'd been a tight LBW that I hadn't given. Uh, there's a risk that grumpiness might have escalated. Might have boiled um, over. I imagine that I when you started this off by saying I've never experienced cricket in the Lancashire League, and I kind of like to think that that it would live up to its stereotype that those of us from the south have for our friends in in the north that absolutely everyone is like that, and in fact the entire you know of the li- well, entirety of the league is full of kind of forelock tugging people saying so well, and yet stab, stabbing everyone else in the back with their words. Well, other funnily times. enough, w- w- while we're while we're going down this engaging rabbit hole, um, we do have a member of our team who has played in, in Lancashire, and we had one game that was like mildly a bit testy with the opposition, and a few of us commented on this afterwards. Mm. Uh, and he sort of gave a wry smile and said, you know, if you thought that was testy, yep. you know, I'll, I'll see you in Manchester next week kind of thing. So, um, yes, we're all, um, this is all a, a part of our lives that, you know, m- m- maybe we'll get there someday. Although I, I doubt I would be making the, the, um, the sixth eleven at most Lancashire League clubs. Now, now from, um, <laughs> from the north to the Pacific... Yeah, so so cricket in the Pacific is is not an area of expertise for me, I have to say. Um, in fact, I know absolutely nothing about it. So I was interested to um, hear on a on a news bulletin, just a kind of regular radio news bulletin the other day. Uh, it was a bit of a slow news day, admittedly, but a report about a new program that had been created by the Australian government's Pacific Oz Sports Arm, which is a part of the kind of Department of Foreign Affairs um, and it's this program that's been set up to try and help to expand the game in in the Pacific and I suppose through that to um, help ignoramuses like me to to appreciate that there is a game that a thriving game that happens in the in the Pacific so there's this wonderfully named thing called the Australian Pacific Cricket Linkages Program which sounds like something out of one of those kind of um, 
parody, you know, um, what are the, uh, Utopia is uh, an Australian kind of parody government show. Um, but the idea is that um, PNG, so Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, which are the two leading cricket nations in the Pacific, they'll be given um, access to play in Australian competitions, particularly a competition in the Northern Territory here, which I suppose follows in the model of um, Ireland and Scotland, who have both played mm. in, in uh, the county championship um county championship for a while the idea being that it will lead to increased exposure within the pacific um and more broadly but also just this this age-old thing of of the cricketers actually being able to play against sort of test themselves against opposition of a higher level rather than always be playing you know locally against opposition of a of a much of a much lower level potentially um i did go down a bit of a, a bit of a rabbit hole um looking into this one and it turns out that there is who knew a very fierce rivalry between vanuatu who are currently the underdogs of the pair and papua new guinea who are the kind of dominant pacific cricketing um nation there's also another kind of nice little twist here which is that the icc have apparently changed the qualification criteria for the next 2020 world cup such that it's done on obviously other than the kind of top teams it's done on a geographical location basis and so whoever wins the kind of pacific sort of you know qualifiers tournament automatically goes straight into the into the world cup and so suddenly there's this real incentive for both of those nations because of course being able to go into the world cup suddenly you're playing your first group game against india and your next one against mm. Sri Lanka or whatever it is you're suddenly kind of at the top table for that for that moment which is then a real a real kind of kind of game changer it's that age-old thing isn't it in cricket development you want to give the opportunities but is it an opportunity to get smashed by India um, as you say in that sort of opening game now this might be a very ignorant question but I'm looking to you as our sort of Antipodean um, correspondent is there a sort of close relationship between sort of Australia and Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu like is there sort of kind of more broadly you mean yeah, is there sort of, yeah, there are, is. are they countries that Australians visit fairly frequently? Yeah. Well, less visiting, but certainly diplomatically. And, so, mm. and there's recently been a lot of um, kerfuffle about the fact that the previous Australian coalition government uh, didn't kind of look after its ties with the Pacific such that China has kind of swooped in and tried to make ah. better friends with the Pacific than, than Australia has. And so that's been, the, the new government has kind of tried to, to readjust that. But I think there is a real sense of for a number of reasons a sense of kind of responsibility that australia feels to its role as the kind of frankly the richest um you know country in this in this part of the world to be able to help kind of development in in different ways i don't think it's always totally disinterested and in Mm. this instance you know obviously trying to you know foster foster cricket is never a disinterested thing as we've seen over the last 100 150 years um but yeah i think it is an extension of of a um kind of established trend around australia kind of looking to those those neighbors and how to increase links with them from the archives and andy is going to tell us about the day the president went to the cricket the date was december 8th 1959 and president dwight d eisenhower watched a day of test cricket more specifically he watched day four of the third test between pakistan and australia in karachi So President Eisenhower, widely known as Ike, was the 34th president and was in office from 1953 to 1961. So by 1959, sort of getting to the end of his um, getting to the end of his time as president. Also very well known as the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force during World War II, which meant he led the D-Day landings. 
but what was he doing at the test match? So one account of the trip suggests that this was primarily about going to India. So he had gone there to ensure that India did not get too close to the Soviet Union. So this was all kind of classic Cold War power machinations. As part of um, which you might have thought that he might have gone to a test match in India. Yeah, it's a very good point, actually. I wonder why that wasn't put in his itinerary. And I think the view was very much... If you're going to India, you better go to Pakistan because otherwise that's seen as a bit of a diplomatic faux pas to sort of privilege one country over the other. I was surprised to read, and to be fair, I I tried to verify this, but it's not the sort of straightforward thing to verify because there's not sort of easy lists of this. But I was surprised to read that this was apparently the first visit by a Western leader to Pakistan since its creation. So in itself, that was a huge thing. And to give a sense of the scale, a news report from the Times says that three quarters of a million people lined the streets for his visit which I think gives an idea that this was obviously seen as historic um, and very, very significant. um, Particularly for a a fledgling nation, I suppose, to have that sort of sense of endorsement. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, as is true then, as is now, you know, when the president... It was what, late 40s? It was just after the the Second World War that Pakistan got there. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's sort of a de- within a decade, within a decade of that. But I, I was a little bit surprised, I confess, a long way from being an expert on the sort of hi- history of that period, but I was a little bit surprised that a, a, another leader hadn't been by this point. So there he is, and? And how did the test match end up on the itinerary? Well, as much as is understood, the view is that it was probably a decision made by the hosts, and I think that's the convention as far as these things go, that the hosts probably suggest an itinerary and then it's a bit of a negotiation with um, with the American camp. Because um, I've always wondered, I mean, you imagine it must have been come about one of two ways, either from the Pakistanis or someone has a hidden, you know, for whatever reason, mm. he's been up late in the White House flicking through the channels and there happens to have been a cricket game and he's gone, oh my God, the next time I'm in a cricket playing country, I've just got to go and go, yeah. see it. And it's a kind of personal passion. But this, so this looks like it was not a personal passion that it well, came from. Well, so cricket, probably not, but sport was a passion for Eisenhower. So he was an avid fisherman and golfer, but perhaps most significantly for this situation, he loved his baseball. Um, there's a lovely line where he said that not making the baseball team at West Point was one of the greatest disappointments of my life maybe my greatest West <laughs> Point being the um, the military um, college in the US um, I thought this quote was interesting because it could also be read as for a man who was you know ludicrously successful in life perhaps there weren't many disappointments to pick yeah, from well, exactly um, if you fancy uh, by the way a, a bizarre internet rabbit hole which I know all of our listeners do there are reams of web pages dedicated to what is known as the Eisenhower baseball controversy which I'm sure if we were a baseball podcast we would we would do more justice to but in short it's a debate over whether the president did at one stage play minor league baseball for the Junction City soldiers um, f- from the little look I had at this I can confirm that the verdict is still out um, now there was unexpectedly a more direct link between Eisenhower and cricket in recognition of his wartime efforts he had been made a member of the MCC 
um, you know, no, no queuing up for President Eisenhower, no getting your name down. You know, I love 40 that, I love years that kind of gumption from the MCC of, as well of, of no real sense of whether he's even interested in it. <laughs> but just uh, any, anyone would be honoured, even if you've kind of won, won the Second World War and a president of the United States. Of course, he'd be honoured to be a member of the yeah. MCC. So we're going to send the, you know, send off the membership, um, the membership card. Well, interestingly, I wonder whether he knew he was a member. Yeah, and true. I also, as far as I could tell i don't believe he ever went to lord so i don't think he ever took the offer up um what i did think was rather wonderful is that the eisenhower presidential library and museum still has his membership card um so full marks to the curators there for um for looking after their looking after the really important if small items in their collection now back to the cricket unfortunately president eisenhower had chosen a duff day this test was a dead rubber australia already 2-0 up in the three test series but the lack of pressure on the outcome didn't lead to carefree cricket you know you sometimes get these fun dead rubbers where both Mm. sides just think you know what the hell let's go for it pakistan made a painfully slow 287 so they were going at sort of just over two and over in that first innings australia responded with a slightly quicker 257 we get to day four, Pakistan come out to bat for their second innings, and instead of putting on a show for the president and, you know, perhaps trying to win the game, they batted all day for just 104 runs. And I think even in the context, even if you make the allowance of, you know, this was an era where scoring would have been slower, this is still painfully, painfully slow. Do you, th- do you, do you have any sense of, are, are there reports from the time of whether there was a big deal made of him being there? You know, was he... T- wheeled out to meet the teams beforehand and you know did would everyone in the crowd known he was he was there or was it a bit more anonymous than that so good question about whether everyone in the crowd would know he was wheeled out to make the teams and there's actually a nice photo of that of him meeting the meeting the um uh the photo is actually of him meeting the pakistani team but i assume he's sort of met with both um but whether would every attendee have been aware i suppose if they'd have seen him out of the pitch but i i don't know how much was made of it i want big screens you know no, well, he's like, and it's an interesting aside, by the way, going back to the schedule, where if you're if you look at a sort of modern day equivalent of a presidential visit, you know, every minute is precious. <laughs> if you can give an organisation five minutes with the president, yep. as with gold dust. What I find remarkable is that, as far as the records suggest, he came for the day, which so, I think and, now is a pretty awful day of cricket well, as well. By the, by well, the sound he, of things. <laughs> He sat through what the historian Arunaba Sengupta described as a colossal yawn of a match. Um, <laughs> Wisdom wasn't much more positive, suggesting that the president's visit may well be remembered long after this disappointing game is forgotten. But President Eisenhower didn't seem to mind. He reportedly asked lots of questions and cheered loudly for good bits of fielding or rare attacking strokes, and they certainly were rare. Um, now, you can either read this as him being a convert, you know, one of those people who will appreciate any sport at all, um, or perhaps, and I wonder if this isn't slightly more plausible, he was just a very good diplomat mm. who mm. who knew that it would not be the done thing to look bored and miserable. Well, to, um, I mean, and to your earlier point, as a president, you get carted out in front of, you know, Scottish country dancing one minute <laughs> and, you know, whatever it is the next minute. And you have to applaud and look enthusiastic and do all of these you know do all of these things so absolutely and what consummate diplomat as he was well what's even worse is not only do you have to look enthusiastic but if you have a momentary lapse and and this is obviously i think now worse now than it was then and someone gets that photo that you know one image of you looking bored 
that's tomorrow's front page. Yeah. So, yes, he, he did his bit. Um, however, there are diplomatic challenges when two of your close allies are competing against each other. The president was presented with a Pakistani blazer and the Australian captain, Richie Benno, saw him wearing it. Uh, and I thought rather r- rather pluckily, given that, you know, whoever you are, the president of the US is a, probably a pretty intimidating figure. Benno said to him, Mr. President, you have joined the other camp. Um, mm. But as far as I could, as far as can be seen, this was sort of lighthearted rather than the start of it. And presumably referring to a, to a cricketing world rather than to a... <laughs> I imagine that Pakistan and Australia weren't diplomatically at loggerheads necessarily. I, at this, I don't know. Again, I'm not yes, a, I a, do. an expert <laughs> yeah, I, on, the, on the history of the, of the time. No, fortunately, I don't think this was the beginning of a big uh, geopolitical re- rearrangement. Um, but uh, so yes, is, so this, the, is this a one-off? Have, have there been other American presidents that surely there have been others that have been... I mean, I'm just thinking there must have been some that have been to Lords at some point carted out in front of, mm-hmm. you know. So, so I agree. If you asked this question in isolation, you would assume that this had happened a few times, wouldn't you? You'd, have, you'd assume that there would have been occasions. It's a ceremonial um, thing to do when you're in certain countries. Exactly. But, but as far as sort of reports suggest, and again, this is something on which perhaps the record t- keeping is um, uh, rather inexact, the suggestion is that no one has ever, certainly not gone to a test match. I don't know if there's a suggestion that perhaps mm. someone's gone to a, an ODI or a T20. Um, so I think it's high time this record is broken and we hope very much to see President Biden at Lords for next summer's ashes. Um, and let's see if he can meet Eisenhower's standards and make it through a whole day. Without yawning. <laughs> To the review, and for this episode, we've been watching Freddie Flintoff's Field of Dreams. It was released in July this year. It was made by the BBC and hosted by Flintoff. It's a three-episode kind of mini-series, mini-documentary series. And to quote the BBC, Freddie returns to his hometown of Preston for the sporting challenge of a lifetime. Can he inspire some unlikely teens to give cricket a chance, or has he bitten off more than he can chew? Now, this is cricket on the BBC, on a national broadcaster. It's with a you know a celebrity figure, so lots of attention for the sport. W- what do you think it, the documentary says about cricket in the UK in 2022? Well, it starts off with a very kind of clear um, hypothesis, if you like, which is that to, and it sort of states it this plainly, that to play cricket, you have to either be rich or you have to be lucky and it quotes the fact that the England men's test team I think two-thirds six out of 11 I think at the moment are um, privately educated which is obviously a much much higher proportion to the uh, proportion of privately educated people um, at at large just as an aside I know that the women's team is much different and it was and that was briefly mm. mentioned and, and it would, would be interesting to know kind of what 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 some of the reasons behind that difference are um, but this kind of class narrative really runs through the whole program um i suppose so it's about you know a group of boys who have never played cricket never watched cricket they have no idea who flintoff is um they are kind of kept, when asked you know what's what they think of cricket they immediately say it's a posh sport and it's you know kind of for, um not 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 for them and there are some moments where i think you kind of realize how i suppose part of the program is about debunking that and showing that cricket's for everyone and then the team building that comes with it and the joy of playing cricket can be appreciated by anyone whatever your background but there are also moments to go back to your original question when I think you do realize how Mm. 
that perception is something that is very, very embedded within the game. One of them that kind of struck me very strongly was the moment when they were all asked to put put whites on and suddenly you and one of them says oh i feel like a, i can't remember the exact description but he says like i feel like a preacher or something and you suddenly realize, yeah absolutely it is kind of it's a bit like that whole thing of people going into court and seeing a man with a like or a woman with a with a wig on the top of their head and suddenly feeling like this is completely alien mm. to me and you can suddenly totally appreciate that and these and these kids kind of do look ridiculous wearing well, whites in a way that people who are kind of to the manner born as it were don't you know kind of look and suddenly you do realize that is is there something within the game that has um you know creates that divide i i think what's sad watching it is you start to worry and we'll get into this about what the film says about the future but you start to worry this is a lost cause right you look at how few of the kids i was taken aback by how few of the kids knew who knew anything about english cricket you know they didn't know flintoff was in and what's particularly sad on the this is a posh sport this isn't for us is this wasn't always true, was it? I mean, the the, the film, right. and this is not a failing of the film because it's not what it's trying to do, but, you know, it, it, it could give that historical context about the fact that, okay, there were large parts of cricket's history where um, kids in Preston would absolutely have, have played the game. Um, j- just sort of finally, I guess, on the class point specifically, I thought it was a, there was a really telling moment which showed the danger of trying to be kind of maybe too blunt in how you set things up because some of the kids looked up the BBC's description of the programme mm. um, and they found this description of the kids involved as underprivileged mm-hmm. and they really reacted against that and I thought it was a very useful reminder that even sort of good intentions by a, you know, a well-meaning BBC producer can feel very disrespectful towards the subject. And it does, it does require, the whole programme requires this kind of class narrative to play out in this kind of sense of the us and them and one of the things that makes it very successful is I think the role of um, Freddie Flintoff uh, within that because he absolutely bridges this gap between you know he he is a rare-ish example of someone uh, not in privately educated state educated who's gone on to you know great success as a cricketer for um, for England and uh, so there's that side to him um, but he kind of has to put all of that away and the side of him that kind of comes out is the side of him that is able to connect with these boys who grew up in circumstances very very you know and in a place that in the same place that he um that he he grew up in as well so so i watched a lot of this with my former teacher hat on and i think Mm. i I was i'm always gratified in a way to see adults struggling with um challenging teenagers because i think it always reminds me of my own struggles and also i think it's always a reminder to all you know teachers out there of quite how difficult their jobs are but I, I thought I thought Flintoff was great, actually. You know, he um, it's this mix of empathy, but also cajoling, you know, willing to yep. be tough when needed. And I thought it was good that the film did show him struggling at times. Yep. You know, those yep. moments when he's in the net and everyone's just spraying water around or messing around. Was... Like anyone who spent any time, you know, yep. in charge of groups of teenage boys will recognise those and will recognise that you, you get to your limits, whether yep. you've been yep. in England all rounder or not. And it's kind of interesting watching it from our perspective as someone who knows Flintoff through his cricketing exploits and these kids know nothing about that whatsoever so there's no sense of the hero worship he's not he is not an ex-test cricketer in that context at all at well, all he's this guy walking in who nobody has any yeah. idea kind of who he is and and one one interesting um kind of question that i kept on coming back to was when it came to the kind of um social experiment if you want to call it side of this 
is it actually cricket that's making the difference? Mm. Is is what comes out of this that cricket is something that can take you know kids from a to use the BBC's expression underprivileged background and bring them together and give them hope and give them purpose in life, or is it just like uh, could you substitute that in for for dozens of other sports or or hobbies? necessarily and i'm not sure that cricket necessarily is the thing that they're all desperately kind of falling in i agree i mean with a lot of with a lot of the kids it was clear that what they thrived on was being part of a team it was clear that they also really thrived on just the structure of being like right you'll be at cricket at that time you know you'll have something to do i mean um, you know the conversation with some of the kids about well what would you be doing if you weren't it was like well I'd probably be down the park you know drinking so, yeah. and he was like well actually this is a, you know a good a good alternative to that mm-hmm. um, you, you inevitably get into conversations and maybe this is too high a standard to hold the program to but you know to what extent is there a template here for the game in terms of the, the broader game and I think on this it, it it's tough because a lot of this requires Flintoff's involvement and there's a lot here that is slightly improbable. So you have the count, local council playing sort of fairy godmother with, you know, a yep. quarter of a million pounds, which obviously is just And not Flintoff an coming in with a whole lot of his own yeah. money as well in order to renovate a clubhouse and exactly. find a team. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, on that particular point, and you've got to be careful here because the intentions here are good. And I, I still think the programme is a very worthwhile programme. But... I did wonder about some of the choices. So, for example, is it the best use of that money and a Flintoff's profile to help a struggling club? Or would there be merit in sort of doubling down and giving the support to a club that already has a good youth system that could build on it? That could possibly, you know, I'm, I'm sure people could argue that both ways, but I thought that there was something that for TV drama, it's great to take on the clubhouse that's struggling. But in other cases, you're like, well, actually... For the long-term future, is that is that the best? But the, but that's but that's the point, isn't it? Though that that fundamentally, you wouldn't be getting a TV drama that's on the BBC and people yeah. are watching if you were going down the sensible route. It would frankly be bloody yeah. bloody boring, really. Yeah. Um, the by the way, it was actually I was interested to see Rob Key in his now obviously in his his role within the England um, setup, but interesting to see him and get they do a kind of all stars match at the end, and Rob Key is there, kind of playing playing in it, and I just thought. That was an interesting, you know, thing to have him, you know, part of that, given his his amount of power that he now has within the English cricket cricket setup. But yes, mm. I yes, w- if you were trying to create systemic change, you wouldn't go around it this way. But then you wouldn't get and the eyeballs. On a the other thing, well, series. talking about the eyeballs, the the other thing you c- can never quite separate in this film is the power of the camera as much as anything else Mm. so I couldn't help wondering and and this is again no criticism of the kids because I think probably all of us (laughs) would be guilty of this to some extent how many of them are involved in this project how many of them are playing in cricket because I'm on the BBC you know look mum you know and obviously the cameras move on etc how many of them stay involved and I'd love to and you know I it would be interesting to see whether they do this um you know who's going back in a couple of years time and saying well actually how's this how's this fared because yep. I, I think that's yep. a fair test well I- in terms of legacy just quickly the um i mean the one thing that i ended up kind of googling after i'd watched it was the um the afghan um 15 mm. year old adnan who had come on the back of a you know 
on the back of a lorry to to seek asylum um you know come at the back of a lorry and ended up in ended up in Preston that's a long 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 trip across the channel and up the country um and when the program ends you don't know whether you hear that he's been allowed to play for Lancashire under 16 because he's a really promising cricketer but you don't hear whether he's been gotten to asylum but he was in the end and that was kind of a narrative that I wanted to kind of see through to the yeah. you know see, see see through to the end so there are those kind of compelling human stories that exist within it as well yeah and and he's sort of become a bit of a um uh, a poster boy for the series in that when the BBC were doing the promotional work around it he was again and again the person being returned to and I, and I think it particularly at a time when this stuff is uh, you know is always going to be politically contentious some of these yep. issues I think it was a, another powerful story for for the series to tell I, I worry that maybe I, I've heard on the side of being a bit um cynical here around some of the stuff and I think one thing that does need to be said is that you know Flintoff doesn't need to do this you know he hosts mm. Top Gear he has a very successful um, post cricket career he's made that transition very well and and I think um, there absolutely is a part that we should recognise that this is we should recognise that this is someone trying to put back into the game and doing it in a way that um, you know he could have he could have had a lot um, a much easier yep. life so the fact that and, he's and done it is that. actually a powerful it is a powerful reminder when you suddenly realize that actually there are all of these you know we, we think in very um broad structural terms about the development of the game but fundamentally there are all of these kids who have absolutely no way to access it and it actually requires people to go in and kind of make a difference it, it, that was one of the things that was a very powerful reminder out of the out of the series for me for, for the second time this episode I, i'm putting you on the spot as our um antipodean correspondent mm. it, it, could you imagine something like this being made in the same way in australia or are the resonances just not quite the same i mean is, well, does cricket not feel like it needs kind of saving in the same way in australia no i don't think it does you know participation is very strong mostly because it's less through schools it's it is a lot through schools but it's also a lot through local clubs mm-hmm. which are within communities and don't depend on people being privately educated in order to in order to play so i don't i don't know the figures and yes of course there are kind of elite schools that will naturally create more you know test players but that's not really the point what and and interestingly the series starts off with that point where flintoff's going maybe we can turn preston into the incubator for the next generation of test players Mm -hmm. but by the end he's just like it's great for these kids to be playing cricket even if they're you know rubbish at it um but when it comes to actual participation i think it's something that happens on a much more social level um in in australia so i don't think the problem is as acute but it's a good it's a good question in terms of actually the statistics around participation it would be fascinating actually i think to to see this program Mm. get a more worldwide audience and see see what what others others would make of it um Um, so that is freddie flintoff's field of dreams uh it's available on bbc iplayer um it's been up for a while i assume it's it's just going to be up forever but but whoever knows of these things you think they are and then they disappear um and that was the 156th episode of reverse web radio leave us a review wherever you listen um if you can hit us up over on twitter too (laughs) 